Again, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and today we get to continue our series in the book of Genesis. If you have not been with us for a while, um, we left Genesis in November. We finished with the life of Abraham, and after Abraham comes... Isaac, wonderful. No tricks on this one. Uh, And so if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 16. Um, As you're turning there, there has been in our preparation for this um, one story that has come up regularly in my mind. Uh, It happened about three years ago, and uh, my wife and I moved from the backside of Elgin to Bartlett, about, I would say, a quarter mile as the crow flies from here. And the house needed to be completely gutted, and so we had stripped this entire home down to kind of just the very foundations, and uh, we had to really build everything from the back up. So we we had finally finished the first floor. We were really excited. We were very happy. And uh, one night in uh, late summer 2015, I was at an elder deacon meeting, and uh, and so my wife and I have a rule. You got to know the rule before I tell you the story. If she calls me once and I'm in a meeting, I typically don't pick up. Um, in my brain, like if I'm with you or someone else, I'm with them. So I just kind of, I just ignore all phone calls. I don't even look at it. But then if it rings a second time, here's what that means. It's important. Call me back. But like, it's important. So don't forget about me. This is, this is valuable. A third time means pick up the phone now or you're dead meat. Okay. So got it. <laughs> the phone rings uh, for a third time. And I realize, you know, hey, got to pick this up, guys. Give me a second. So I pick up the phone, and I'm, I'm going to do an impersonation of my wife. She's not here. She is um, actually in Phoenix, so I can do whatever I want. But I'm going to do an impersonation. She hates when I do this. She says I make her sound like my mother every time I do an impersonation. I don't know why. Um, so here, here's what I hear. I pick up the phone, because it was a rotary phone, like, clearly. Okay, so I pick, up, I pick up the phone, and I hear, Oh, my gosh, there's poop everywhere. There's poop flying out of the toilet. It's all over me. It's coming out. I don't know what to do. So I respond. That's not exactly how she sounded, but it was that desperate, right? So again, just don't judge me on that. Okay, so I say to her, well, you know, hey, turn the, the valve off on the toilet. Like, she's like, what do you think I did? It was the first thing that I did. And I thought, well, clearly you didn't do it, right? Because if you turn the valve off, all the water wouldn't be coming out. And she's like, no, I did it. I'm telling you something else is going on. And at this point, I was like, oh, no. And I looked at the elders, and I said, uh, hey, guys, I got to go. Apparently something's happening at my house, and I'm going to go run and take care of it. And lo and behold, uh, lo and behold, something had happened in our drain, uh, and this something had caused an entire backup. At the same time, it was not just somebody flushing the toilet. Our dishwasher was on. Our washing machine was on. And one of my daughters was upstairs taking a shower. And all of this fluid was going into this and then backing up and kind of at the point of least resistance. And she's trying to stop it, but doggone it, this thing isn't stopping. Now, here's what you should be asking at this point. What you should be asking is, how in God's green earth is Pastor Michael going to bring this back to the Word of God and to the life of Isaac? Now, I want you to hear me, okay? The life of Isaac was meant to be a conduit. It was meant to be a pass-through. What's interesting is there's very, very little information on the life of Isaac. In fact, in almost every single story but one about the life of Isaac, he is a passive character. What makes Isaac so important is really not anything big that he did. What made Isaac so important is that Isaac received the promises of God from Abraham. He owned it personally, and then he gave it away to the next generation. What makes Isaac so meaningful 
is not any grand accomplishment, but that he was a conduit for the promises of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, conduit. What makes him so valuable is that he received, he owned, and he gave away the promises of God from one generation to the next. And I'm going to give you one big application. This will be the big takeaway at the end as well. Village Church, we are meant to be conduits. And when the gospel, when the word of God and the promises of God get to us and then stop with us, there is a backup and not good things happen. Can I get an amen from anyone, right? And so we are not called to, to, to plug up the, 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 the line here. We are called to allow it to pass through. Now, I know that you're also thinking, Michael, terrible analogy. Because in the analogy, you equated the promise of God with all the water and all the stuff that you wanted to go in. Don't read too far into the analogy. The principle stands as it does. But our job is to hand off the promises of God to those we disciple, to our children, and to our grandchildren. Now, as I say that, um, I know in any room there are multiple moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. And you have sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters who have not trusted in Jesus. There are only a few things that you can actually control. One of them is what you do with the gospel and the promises of God when it's given to you. You can choose to reject them or you can choose to own them. You also have the opportunity to choose whether or not you will give them away. What you cannot choose nor can you control is whether or not your sons or your daughters will personally receive the promises of God, even if they do or don't. Our discipleship responsibilities even go beyond our children. That there are multiple men and women and young people in this church who are spiritual orphans, if you will. They don't have a mom or a dad who trusted in Jesus, and they need someone to disciple them. They need somebody to come alongside of them and not let the conduit get plugged, but to make sure that they receive and now give away the promises of God to the next generation. Now, as we get to the life of Isaac, here's what we're going to see. What makes him so special, it's not anything he did. It's the fact that he took the faith, he owned the faith, and he gave the faith away to the next generation, which is one of the most meaningful and yet difficult things that the church has the opportunity to do. So as we look at the life of Isaac, again, Genesis chapter 16, some of the most formative parts of Isaac's life happened before he was even born. So this morning what I want to do with you is I want to share with you three stories from the life of Isaac. Two happened before he was even alive. And the other happened when he was just a young boy. So the first story I want you to look at is from Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. And this is the story of Isaac's half-brother. I want to share with you a principle that is probably going to guide us through much of this morning. The distance between our pain and the promise is dangerous territory. The distance between our pain and the promise is is dangerous territory. God's promises are meant to make your hearts long. They, they are meant to speak into your deepest pain points and, and the greatest human impulses that we have. And they are meant to make us long for a better world, a better day. When you sit and you evaluate your current circumstances and then you compare them with the promises of God, The distance between these two things, it's dangerous territory, but it's here to make our hearts long. Genesis 16, verse 1, we start, it says this, Now Sarai, she eventually became Sarah. Abram, who eventually became Abraham. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. What is Abram and Sarai's 
pain point. It's going to be the source of their doubt. It's going to be the tension between their pain and their promise. It's what? Infertility. At the end of the day, barrenness, infertility. That's what she's dealing with. Now, if I were to take every man and woman in this room who has struggled with infertility, and I were to bring them up and have them pour out their heartache and their pain to you, few things tap into the pain points of men and women than infertility. And the distance for them between the pain and the promise, it's getting longer and longer and longer and more nauseating. Now, you do need to know that God does not promise anybody that they will have children. But God did make a promise to Sarai. He did make a promise to her, you will have a son. And so for her, she can take this promise to the bank. Because this promise comes from Yahweh himself, and he always keeps his word. What are Sarai's options in this moment? She's got two, as far as I can see. The first, I think, is more preferable. And the first is that she waits for God to fulfill his promise. The problem is the distance between the pain and the fulfillment of the promise, the longer that distance gets, the more dangerous the territory becomes, does it not? The more doubt creeps in, the more frustration creeps in, the more we doubt the goodness of God. And then we've talked about this at Village over and over again. Doubt has this funny little thing that it does in our brain. It allows us to enable and justify sin that we would never do otherwise. Why? Because we're doubting. As if that makes it okay. And so even, even the mature Christian understands that when we doubt, we're not controlled by doubt, but we, we put doubt under our control and we don't let it enable us to do ridiculous things. She has the option to wait on God to keep his promise. Number two, there is a legal and social option that she has on the table. The option goes like this. What she had the option to do is to take one of her maidservants um, and then allow her husband to impregnate her maidservant. And here's what would happen in the dynamic. Um, the maidservant would, uh, get, would, would, would bear the baby, finally give birth. And the moment the baby is born, um, somebody would take the baby out of the, the maidservant and put it immediately into the wife's hands. And the wife would now raise the child as her own. Now, could you imagine the pain point? for the maidservant, for the birth mother, who actually has to give birth to this child and then give it, give it away. So that is a social and legal option on the table. And the question is going to be, what will she do? It goes on and says this in verse 1. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing a child. Now, is that true? The answer is yes. What happens when the distance between the pain and the promise gets longer and longer and longer? Doubt. And people who doubt often do dumb things. So let's watch this unfold. She says in verse 2, Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Why, why would she even think this is logical? What is, what is motivating her? I can come up with four options. Here's, here's one option. It's her social obligation. Women have done way worse because of social obligations. Number two, maybe Abraham or Abram is pressuring her. Maybe he's saying, listen, you know what's expected. You know the job. You know, and, and imagine they have a conversation, maybe, and, and she says, yeah, but God promised I would have a son, but maybe this is the way he said it was going to happen, and maybe Abram is pressuring her. 
Maybe she's just desperate. When you find a man or a woman struggling with infertility, one of the byproducts is, is very often a massive amount of desperation. And the farther you get between the pain and fertility, the deeper and more desperate that can become. And it can be very painful. Maybe, here's an option. Maybe she's, number four, she's just crafty. Maybe this woman is like, listen, I'm 90 years old, okay? And, and I need to have a son because I need somebody to care for me. And, and Abram, you're getting old too. And, and let's just figure this thing out. Maybe she's just a really pragmatic, you know, practical kind of woman. We actually don't know what motivated her. This is the white space of the text that we don't get any answers to. But I can tell you this. I do know that she failed to wait on the promise of God. I do know that she took things into her own hands. And I do know that every time I have ever failed to wait on the promise of God, I have deeply and massively regretted it. I want to come back to this principle again. The distance between our pain and the promise is dangerous territory. So verse 2 says this, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. This is a throwback to Genesis, by the way, when Adam listened to the sinful suggestion of his wife as well. It does not mean that, men, you don't listen to your wife. It means you don't listen to their sinful suggestions. Amen? Ladies, the same applies for you to your husbands. You can give an amen on that one. That's totally fine. Please. So after, verse 3, Abram had lived 10 years in the land. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Pop quiz. When you settle for something less than the promise of God, will it ever be pain-free? What is the answer? That was the weakest note I've ever heard. Let me ask you again. When you settle for something less than the promise of God, will it ever be pain-free? No. In Hagar, verse 4, when she, Hagar, saw that she, Hagar, I want to make sure you understand who the she's are, conceived she, Hagar, looked with contempt on her mistress. This decision would turn this family upside down for the next 13 to 15 years and make living in their household miserable. Miserable. Now let me illustrate why you and I are likely no better than Sarai and Abram. I want to show you how easily we settle for something less than the promises of God on a regular basis. So I'm going to give you the answer beforehand. All the questions I ask you, the answer is going to be yes. Sound good? All right. God promises to be our comforter and helper in mourning. Yes or no? Then why do we self-medicate? God promises blessing for those who wait for a godly man or a godly woman. Yes or no? So we date non-Christians because he's a good man or, quote, she's a spiritual woman. God promises transformation through Bible study and meditation of his word. Yes or no? Yes. So we entertain ourselves to death. Your yeses are getting a little less passionate with each one. God promises freedom from sin through detailed confession. Yes or no? Yes. So we hold it in. Or we hide. Or we confess half-truths. God promises life and joy through your local church community. True or false? So we consume on Sundays because we're afraid of being hurt again and again and again. God promises that bitterness will corrupt our soul and our loved ones. True or false? True. So we baby it. And we get really angry at anybody who threatens the life of our little baby called bitterness. God promises that those who are in Christ are forgiven and there is no condemnation. Please give me a big hearty true on this one. Yes. 
And yet we struggle and we believe God is mad at us and he's punishing us. And if I had a dime or a quarter for every single person who said to me, I don't know if God could ever forgive this. It's too big. The promise of God is so clear. And yet the longer the distance between the pain and the fulfillment of the promise, it's dangerous territory. Doubt creeps in. It's very frustrating. So much of the story, by the way, of the Bible is men and women revealing our faithlessness, our lack of trust. Sometimes the longer the pain goes, the longer the distance between the promise and the pain, it just reveals what is really inside of us. And the longer it gets, we learn. We are capable of great stupidity. And yet God, every single time, is proven as trustworthy and a promise keeper despite our faithlessness. Now imagine you're Isaac. Now imagine you're Isaac, and you've heard stories. You've heard stories about this half-brother somewhere. You've heard the stories that Isaac or or Ishmael one day, your half-brother, laughed at you, the promise of God, and it so infuriated your mother that she kicked your half-brother and his mother out of the home, into the desert, and left them to die. You may have heard the stories about how God himself, Jesus, actually the angel of the Lord, shows up and personally saves Hagar and Ishmael's life. You may have heard stories about this brother, this half-brother of yours who, is a, who lives in the wilderness, who is semi-nomadic, who's incredible with the bow. You've maybe even wondered, if I see this guy again, is he going to kill me because of what my mother And his father and my father actually did to them and left them for dead in the middle of the desert. Isaac's brother and sordid family history, um, they serve as lifelong warnings of doubting God's promises. And this is all over Isaac's life. He's not even born yet, and this is the family that he's going to be born into. You better believe this profoundly impacted the man. Let's go to the second story, Genesis 17. I want to share with you the story of Isaac's name. I could just tell you what it means, but the reader, uh, the, the, the reader needs to understand the story behind the name and how the name informs the man's future. Genesis 17, verse 15, here's what we have. God said to Abraham, he now has a new name. Uh, his name means father of multitudes, which is ironic because he does not have multitudes underneath him. It's a very prophetic name. He says this, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. Have you ever evaluated your current pain point? looked at the promise of God and thought to yourself, that's impossible. That will never happen. The Lord will never make this thing right. That is too far away. That is too hard. That is too distant. I mean, the most challenging aspect of the promises of God is that most of the promises of God are only experienced in part. They're only experienced in part now, but they're experienced in their fullness later. We need to just process this. Most of the promises of God are only experienced in part now, and you don't get to experience the fullness of most of them until later. I call this the 1%, and not the Bernie Sanders 1%, by the way. This is the 1% of what you actually get to experience this side of heaven. 
When you, when you and I die, when Jesus remakes the whole world and renews everything, like, I'm telling you, we're going to go to the 100%, and it is going to massively far outweigh anything that we have right now, we get to see right now. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. Revelation 21, 3 to 4, I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's some promises of God that you can take to the bank. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Check these promises out. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. Let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Spirit a comforter? Yes or no? Again, all my answers are yes today. I'm not going to trick you. Is the Holy Spirit an encourager? Is the Holy Spirit a healer? Absolutely. Is the Holy Spirit forming Christ in you? Yes. You go on and on and on. And in your greatest pain, the Holy Spirit is going to enter into that pain. But I'm telling you, right, the 1% that you experience now, like, are you still crying at times? Yeah. Is there still tears and death and mourning and frustration? Yeah, that's the 100%. And right now you get the 1%. And it's really hard to only get the 1%. Like, I want all of that now. Anyone else? Yes, there we go. All the answers are yes. Abraham received less than the 1% of what God promised. God takes Abraham and he takes him out under the starry sky and he says this, so shall your descendants be. Abraham inevitably would see in his lifetime one-tenth percent of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth percent of the multitudes that would inevitably come from him. He didn't even get to see the 1%. And somehow this man is going to die and close his eyes with the confident expectation that God will indeed fulfill the prophecy of his name, Abraham, father of multitudes. So God says, you'll have a son by Sarah. So let's look at verse 17. We'll get Abraham's response. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This is not the response of a man who's had a hard week, a hard month, or a hard year. This is, the, this is the response of a man where the distance between his pain and the fulfillment of the promise is getting longer and longer and longer, and bitterness is creeping in. And doubt is creeping in. And frustration is keep creeping in. The distance between the pain and the promise, it's really dangerous territory. I want you to understand this. I don't know if you've ever laughed at something so hard it brought you to your knees because it was so funny. This is a laugh of mockery to the face of God as God is making a personal promise to Abraham. Your wife, I know she's really old, but she's going to have a baby. And this baby, it's going to be a son. And the son is going to receive the promises. And the promises are going to make their way to the next generation. And multitudes are going to come from you. He's like, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. Verse 18 says this. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no. No. That was the easy way. We're going to do something different. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Every single time 
Abraham and Sarah call their son, they're going to be reminded of a couple of things. One of them is the time Abraham laughed in God's face out of a hard, doubtful heart. This would be God's constant rebuke to his unbelief. Don't ever doubt what I am capable of. It's a promise that our God will never be mocked. You can laugh at his face all you want, but he wins in the end every time. I think most valuable, valuable is every good promise that the Lord makes will come to fruition eventually. And every person will be able to look after the promise is fulfilled and they will be able to laugh with joy. Our God is a promise keeper. He fulfills his word and not one thing that he has promised will happen will fail to come to pass. Isaac's very name is a reminder for all who say it that Yahweh keeps his promises despite impossible odds. Number three, Isaac's dad. He's not even born yet. (laughs) And these are the life-shaping forces that are going to guide this man through the next two or three sermons that we do in his life. Isaac's dad, Genesis 22. If you were with us in the study of Abraham's life, one of the things that you learned is that a lot of the stories that we often look back on and say, yay, Abraham, he's great, actually in their context were indictments. The amount of times Abraham threw away or tried to throw away or sabotage the promise of God, it actually just gets nauseating to read how frustrating this guy is. What God had been doing with Abraham for over the last 30, 40 years since he really became a follower of Yahweh was he was developing faith and trust in Yahweh. Yahweh wanted to make it unbelievably clear, I am trustworthy. You can trust me. My heart is trustworthy. Do what I ask you to do no matter how scary it is because I will always come through for you. So Genesis 22, it's the climactic, event of Abraham's life. Now, we already went through this passage a couple months ago. I want to go through this passage, not so much from Abraham's perspective, but from Isaac's perspective. And what I love about this is Isaac is going to get a front row seat to the most important event in all of Abraham's life. Now, you might be wondering, how old was Isaac? And here's the best that we can tell you. He is older than five and younger than 37. (laughs) Now, it seems he's a young boy, almost beginning of adolescence. And so we're going to place him, most scholars would, maybe between the ages of like 10 and 14 or 15 years old. He's big enough to understand um, sacrificial laws and codes and obligations. He's also big enough to carry at least a good amount of wood. He's old enough to have coherent conversations with his dad. What Isaac doesn't know is that he is going to have an unbelievably dark front row seat to the greatest test of his father's life. Verse 1, Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. What's funny about this, I think it's a little ironic, is that like almost every time God says, hey, Abraham, God's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you more money. I'm going to give you more stuff. I'm going to give you more descendants. Life's going to be great, right? And so I imagine at this point, God's like, hey, Abraham. And he's like, yeah, what do you want to give me today? Like, how do you want to bless me today? Like, everything I do turns to gold. Bring it. Let's do this. And here's what he says. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. You should be asking, where's Ishmael? Gone. Whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. If you're reading this for the first time, which most of you aren't, 
But if it's your first time really reading this, this makes no sense. And the reason it makes no sense is because the only way the promise of God to Abraham can be fulfilled is if this specific kid does it. If the kid is dead, hear me, God is a liar. And so what's weird is that God is actually putting Abraham in an unbelievable test. The test isn't just, will you slaughter your son? The test is, even if you follow through on what I'm telling you, it makes God out to be an untrustworthy, promise-breaking liar. God is saying, Abraham, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And here's, here's what I do know. I know that God, on a regular basis, is going to come before a mom and a dad, and he's going to ask you to do impossibly difficult and frustrating things. And in our brain, we often make decisions together. But guess who is watching every one of our tests? Our children. They have a front row seat to this, and it is forming, and it is shaping them in profound ways. And so we are tested And we are tested publicly so that our children can learn what it means to trust the heart and the commands of our God. Verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Go to verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. There is so much white space in this text. I have so many questions, but here's what I do know. I can't think of a single 14-year-old who can't beat up his 115-year-old grandpa. Right? And so here's what I, I am confident of. We start to learn a little bit into the the nature of Isaac, that Isaac trusted his father. And I don't know what the conversation was. I don't know if the conversation was, listen, son, I don't know how this is going to pan out. I don't know what the Lord's going to ask us to do. I need you to trust me. I've never known the heart of God to fail us. I know how this looks, but I'm telling you, this is going to work itself out. So I just need you to trust me. You know what the Lord told me to do. He is good. He has never failed us. Let's do this. And then Abram reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And the question is, what would Abram, Abraham do? And would he trust Yahweh? Let me actually tell you what Abraham is thinking. Hebrews 11.9 actually tells us. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This man is going to go through with this because of his sheer and utter confidence in the character of his God to be a promise keeper. And in the hands-down greatest moment of relief in the entire Bible, Jesus personally shows up as the angel of the Lord. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and I imagine he's like, yeah, 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 please let me stop, I don't want to do this, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Why would God test Abraham like this? I mean, number one, to, to validate his character and his faith, for sure. Number, number two, and I even think a little bit more importantly, 
is so that all of the Israelites for generations on would know that our God, Yahweh, would never actually ask us to do something like this. This is something the Canaanite gods would do. And so you, you fast forward just like, I don't know, a thousand years or so, and here's what you find. Even King Solomon, worshiping the false gods who sacrificed firstborn children. At the end of his life, he's worshiping these gods. These gods were like a, a lure for the people of Israelites, these Canaanite, vile, disgusting, evil gods. And so what God is doing at the very front end of developing this nation, he knows the plan. He knows the lure that the Canaanite gods are going to be for the people of Israel. And he's saying from the very beginning, I am not like them. But there's a third thing here that I think is just so beautiful. He is leaving an indelible mark on the soul of Isaac that God is trustworthy and God always keeps his promises, always. Isaac's dad is a reminder that no matter how bleak things feel, Yahweh will keep his promises. And the kid's 13-ish. The beautiful thing about him is that he gets, he's this amazing story. And somehow as his dad gets older, his dad gives them these promises and he now gets a front row seat to believe and to see the promises of God are true and trustworthy. I want to give you two so what's. Village Church, number one, we are conduits of the promises of God. Our, ch- our children, our grandchildren, those we disciple, We are created by God to not be the hero of our own story. We are obsessed with making a name for ourselves. We are obsessed with being the hero, obsessed with being a conduit. You are not the final chapter in God's book. And then Micah was born, and God basically did the best he could, and there was nothing else after that. No. Statistically speaking, there's going to be a lot more chapters after you should Jesus not come back. And here's the deal. You want the book to keep going. Whether it's somebody you disciple, your son or your daughter, your niece, your nephew, your grandchildren, whatever it is. You want the book to keep going. And here's the deal. The gospel and the promises of God and the American church, they just get clogged. The conduits get clogged. And when things get clogged, not good things happen. And so we get the promises of God, and we just assume they're going to inherit them. And it's like, no, you have to hand them off. You have to pass them off. You have to fight for this next generation. Unless you sit here and think to yourself, I'm not like that. Let me just ask you a couple simple questions. Not to even necessarily convict you, but maybe, maybe to unclog the drain a little bit so that the conduit can function the way it's supposed to. Who are you discipling specifically? By name. And I want to give you a huge encouragement. Your children matter, and they count in that list. Okay? Some people are like, well, your kids don't count that. Like, even if all your discipling are your children, like, praise God, keep at it. You pour into them, and you fight for the promises of God and the faith and the gospel to be handed to the next generation. You fight for that. Now, here's, here's the next question. That name you came up with, if I asked them who's discipling you, would they say your name? Like, we, we love to think we're disciple makers. I'm telling you, I can't tell you how many times the conduit's getting clogged because we're not obeying the Great Commission. We're not making disciples. 
And so I just want to look at you and say, we are conduits of the promises of God. We have inherited from whoever shared the gospel with us amazing promises of God. We now had the privilege to own them when we trusted in Jesus Christ. And now we can't clog the drain. We need to give them away. And we start with our family and we work out. Number two, like Isaac, every child must own the promises of God personally by faith. Another great sin of the American church. We believe we're fine because our parents loved God, our grandma prayed, and we went to church growing up. And here's what has to happen. Isaac has to take on the promises of God personally and own them, and he will. But it doesn't just stop with that. Then he has to now turn and look to the next generation and give them away. But before he can do that, he has to personally own them through faith. And so I know on any given Sunday morning, there are multiple men and women and students and children who will hear a sermon and you will believe spiritually before God you're fine because of something someone else did in your life. And eventually every man, woman, student, and child has to personally own their faith in Jesus Christ? Have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ? For a lot of people, they believe they are sinners. They believe in God generically, or even Jesus specifically, that he died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the dead, but they have never come to God, confessed their sins before him, and asked him to actually forgive them of their sins. And I'm telling you, you will never be a conduit of the promises of God until you personally own the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you done that? And if I could step back and and I could give you just a a couple big so what's from this message. Number one is I want to just tell you, our God is unbelievably faithful. Unbelievably faithful. And I get the pain. I get the frustration. I get the distance. I see that palpably in my life and in so many lives. And yes, you've got the 1%, but I'm telling you, if you stick with it and you persevere to the end, God will be declared the genius of history and you will never regret trusting him no matter how far the distance is between the pain and the fulfillment of the promise. Number two, I can tell you that the great sin of our culture in our day is that we clog up the drain. And we need to unclog it by being a conduit and being disciple makers and giving the faith away. Isaac didn't do anything great. In fact, the one story he was actually like doing something, he did something bad. What he's remembered for primarily is handing the faith from one generation to the next. Now, if we close this message and I don't tell you how my drain got clogged, I'm going to have a thousand conversations over the next two weeks with all of you. Let me tell you the story to close. Uh, When we were renovating the house, Pastor Tim and I, Pastor Tim, I don't know if you know this, the dude can fix anything. He's amazing. Unbelievable. And the dude is a workhorse. So um, one day he, we were getting, it took us like three months to just get most of this house done that we were renovating. And, and, uh, and so Tim shows up at like 7 a.m. And it was like 10 or 11 o'clock. I'm like, bro, dude, you can go home. And he's like, why are you tired? And I'm like, you kidding me? You ki- yeah, I'm tired. Come on. But I'm, I'm like, I will not lose to his energy. I will, <laughs> you know. And uh, so Tim's amazing. The dude just has more go and fire and energy in him than any human being I know. And uh, he's only like 42 years old, something. I'm just kidding. He's, he's older. Um, but <laughs> he has 20 years on me. And for that, I'm like, I'm trying to keep up with him. Like, that's the irony of the whole thing. So, uh, so Tim and I are there and, uh, and they're in, in the bathroom where the incident happened. Um, 
there's nothing on the ground. There's no sink. There's no anything. It's just, it's just a subfloor. That's it. And uh, I don't remember who. It was either me or one of us dropped a screwdriver into the stupid hole. No toilet, just drop it in the hole. Well, Tim being a mechanic as well, because he can fix anything, um, Tim being a mechanic goes, and uh, he has this camera with this like snake video camera thing. It's like four feet long. And he's going in there and he's like, bro, this, this screwdriver's gone. It's like, it's, it's not going to be found. So I'm thinking to myself, all right, we'll figure out what happens. So we put the hole in the next week or two, we put the bathroom back together. Life happens as normal. Fast forward two months. So what happened is this stupid screwdriver goes down one 90 degree angle, another 90 degree angle, another 90 degree angle, another 90 degree angle, another one. It gets stuck at the last 90 degree angle before it goes out the house to the big pipe. So what happens is over two months, this thing is jammed. And then every time someone flushes the toilet, every time someone takes a shower, every time someone does the dishes, every time somebody does the laundry. And for the week or so before this stupid event, it was making noises. I'm going to be honest. Like there were some gurgle sounds and I didn't know what to do with that. But I'm thinking, no, it couldn't be the screwdriver. There's no, there's no possible way. So anyways, we uh, finally, when this event happened, we had to call a plumber. Uh, I think it was seven or eight hours later and seven or eight hundred dollars. Uh, uh, he had to go through all of our lines and finally you just heard and this thing released and then everything drained and life went on happily ever after. What I didn't tell you also is that right underneath that bathroom, uh, the week before I had taken all of our electronics and all of our furniture in the basement, put it all into one corner right underneath that stuff was gone forever. <laughs> and now you know the rest of the story. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for Jesus because we, over and over again, are just faithless. It's actually frustrating how regularly faithless we can be. I'm amazed that the distance between the pain and the promise can just expose our hearts and but Lord, you are creating us to be men and women of faith. And at the same time, Jesus, you paid the price for our sins. You are doing something. And I thank you for the so many times that I've watched men and women in our church have their faith tested. And because of years of faithfulness, they overcame and they passed the test. And their children were able to look on that and watch and to see a mom and dad who trusted in the promises of God. I'm also thankful for the many moms and dads who have apologized to their sons and daughters when they blew it. And even how that apology and that ownership is transformational for the kids to watch. God, I'm thankful for all the disciple makers in this church who are fighting as hard as they can with kids and grandkids and, and, and men and women in this church to really hand off the faith and to be a true conduit and to allow the promises of God to flow through them. And I'm so grateful for their passion for that. And God, I pray um, that we would be able to see more and more people come to true genuine, persevering faith in Jesus, and you would grow each one of us and them to trust you more and more. And yet, God, for every moment of doubt and for every moment of jadedness and bitterness, the shed blood of Jesus Christ washes over us and declares us forgiven and not condemned. And as much as we love to self-condemn, we declare with your word and your spirit that we are forgiven we have placed our faith in Jesus. So thank you. As we come to this communion table, we remember. We're filled with gratitude. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.